Hey friends, welcome to 1000 Words, Stories on the Way. My name is Matthew Clark. Uh, Well, I really enjoyed walking through Holy Week this past week here on the podcast. And I'm so grateful to all the folks who contributed. Uh, Brian Brown is the director of the Anselm Society out in Colorado Springs. And he read the prayers each day and he read some poetry. Uh, Two of my favorite songwriters, singer-songwriters, Taylor Linhart and Chris Slayton, who goes by Son of Laughter, contributed uh, songs. Uh, Also, Taylor wrote a poem one day as well, which was really wonderful. Um, Amy Lee wrote and read several pieces last week, and my friend Grace Andrews read a poem. Um, Poet Malcolm Geit shared several of his sonnets, which were great. And Kirsten Jeffrey Johnson read a poem for us yesterday. It felt so great to collaborate on the Holy Week podcast, and uh, just listening to those each night before I went to bed uh, went a long way in helping me sense the reality of what Jesus has done for us. Um, Not only that, but having the voices of friends along the way encouraged me really deeply, as those voices reminded me that I am part of a family, and I'm not just some, you know, floating island Um, So thank you so much for listening, and thank you to all those who contributed last week. Um, But wait, there's more, because it's still Eastertide. It's still Eastertide all the way up to Pentecost, which is May 31st. So even though I'm moving this podcast back to its regular schedule each Monday, I don't want to hurry away from Easter just yet. So today I want to share two things. Uh, first is an excerpt from an article by Alexander Schmemann, who was an Eastern Orthodox priest, and his book, For the Life of the World, has been a huge encouragement to me the last, I don't know, six or eight years since I stole my friend Jay's copy. Thanks, Jay. Uh, and the second thing is, a reading from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that Kirsten Jeffrey Johnson sent over. But I didn't have room for it in yesterday's Easter Day podcast. But it's so wonderful, and she was so kind to do it, I thought, I've got to share it with you today. So I'm going to share that as well. Um, If you like this podcast, please take a minute and write a review and... Share it on Facebook or Instagram with your friends. That's a big help in just getting this out there and helping people find it. Um, I don't have any kind of promotional team or anything like that. Um, so I really appreciate your help and support in, uh, in doing this. Thank you. But here is the first reading. It's an excerpt edited for space uh, from Alexander Schmemann's article, Easter in the liturgical year. In the center of our liturgical life, in the very center of that time which we measure as year, we find the feast of Christ's resurrection. What is resurrection? Resurrection is the appearance in this world which is completely dominated by time 
and therefore by death, of a life that will have no end. The one who rose again from the dead does not die anymore. In this world of ours, not somewhere else, not in a world that we do not know at all, but in our world, there appeared one morning someone who is beyond death and yet in our time. This meaning of Christ's resurrection, this great joy, is the central theme of Christianity. The center, the day that gives meaning to all days and therefore to all time is that yearly commemoration of Christ's resurrection at Easter. This is always the end and the beginning. We are always living after Easter and we are always going toward Easter. Easter is the earliest Christian feast. The whole tone and meaning of the liturgical life of the church is contained in Easter, together with the subsequent 50-day period, which culminates in the Feast of the Pentecost, the coming down of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. This unique Easter celebration is reflected every week in the Christian Sunday. Every Sunday, we have a little Easter St. Paul says, If Christ is not risen, then your faith is in vain. There is nothing else to believe. This is the real center. And it is only in reference to Easter as the end of all natural time and the beginning of the new time in which we as Christians have to live that we understand the whole liturgical year. We are no longer people who are living in time as if it were a meaningless process, which makes us first old and then ends in our disappearance. We are given not only a new meaning in life, but even death itself has acquired a new significance. In the Troparion at Easter, we say, He trampled down death by death. We don't say that he trampled down death by resurrection, but by death. A Christian still faces death as a decomposition of the body, as an end. Yet, in Christ, in the church, because of Easter, because of Pentecost, death is no longer just the end, but it is the beginning also. It is not something meaningless which therefore gives a meaningless taste to all of life. Death means entering into the Easter of the Lord. Christianity is, first of all, the proclamation in this world of Christ's resurrection. We often use the term grace, but what is grace? Charisma in Greek means not only grace, but also joy. And I will give you the joy that no one will take away from you. If I stress this point so much, it is because I am sure that if we have a message to our own people, it is that message of Easter joy 
which finds its climax on Easter night. When we stand at the door of the church and the priest has said, Christ is risen, then the night becomes, in terms of St. Gregory of Nyssa, lighter than the day. This is the secret strength, the real root of Christian experience. Only within the framework of this joy can we understand everything else. In the wood behind them, a bird gave a chuckling sound. It had been so still for hours and hours that it startled them. Then another bird answered it. Soon there were birds singing all over the place. It was quite definitely early morning now, not late night. I'm so cold, said Lucy. So am I, said Susan. Let's walk about a bit. They walked to the eastern edge of the hill and looked down. The one big star had almost disappeared. The country looked all dark grey, but beyond, at the very end of the world, the sea showed pale. The sky began to turn red. They walked to and fro more times than they could count between the dead Aslan and the eastern ridge, trying to keep warm. And oh, how tired their legs felt. Then at last, as they stood for a moment looking out towards the sea and Care Paravel, which they could now just make out, the red turned to gold along the line where the sea and sky met and very slowly came up to the edge of the sun. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. What's that? said Lucy, clutching Susan's arm. I feel afraid to turn round, said Susan. Something awful is happening. They're doing something worse to him, said Lucy. Come on! And she turned, pulling Susan round with her. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colours and shadows were changed that for a moment they didn't see the important thing. And then they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end. And there was no Aslan. <gasps> cried the girls, rushing back to the table. It's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it, is it magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked round. There, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan? said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You're not a... asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath 
and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look it, he said. You're real. You are real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. But what does this all mean? asked Susan when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, then she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And now. Yes, and now, said Lucy, jumping up and clapping her hands. Oh, children, said the lion, I feel my strength coming back to me. Oh, children, catch me if you can. He stood for a second, his eyes very bright, his limbs quivering, lashing himself with his tail. Then he made a leap high over their heads and landed on the other side of the table. Laughing, though she didn't know why, Lucy scrambled over it to reach him. Aslan leaped again. A mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws and catching them again. And now stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled over and over together in a happy laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. And the funny thing was that when all three finally lay together panting in the sun, the girls no longer felt in the least tired or hungry or thirsty. And now, said Aslan presently, to business. I feel I'm going to roar. You had better put your fingers in your ears. And they did. And Aslan stood up. And when he opened his mouth to roar, his face became so terrible that they did not dare look at it. And they saw all the trees in front of him bend before the blast of his roaring as grass bends in a meadow before the wind. Then he said, We have a long journey to go. You must ride on me. And he crouched down, and the children climbed onto his warm golden back. And Susan sat first, holding on tightly to his mane, and Lucy sat behind, holding on tightly to Susan. And with a great heave, Haslan rose underneath them and shot off, faster than any horse could go, downhill and into the thick of the forest. That ride was perhaps the most wonderful thing that happened to them in Narnia. Have you ever had a gallop on a horse? Think of that, and then take away the heavy noise of the hoofs and the jingle of the bit, and imagine instead the almost noiseless padding of great paws. 
Then imagine instead of the black or gray or chestnut back of the horse, the soft roughness of golden fur and the mane flying back in the wind. And then imagine you are going about as twice as fast as the fastest racehorse. But this isn't a mount that needs to be guided and never grows tired. He rushes on and on, never missing his footing, never hesitating, threading his way with perfect skill between tree trunks, jumping over bush and briar and the smaller streams, wading the larger ones, swimming the largest of all. And you are riding not in a road, nor in a park, nor even on the downs, but right across Narnia in spring, down solemn avenues of beach and across sunny glades of oak, through wild orchards of snow-white cherry trees, past roaring waterfalls and mossy rocks and echoing caverns, up windy slopes alight with gorse bushes, and across the shoulders of heathery mountains and along giddy ridges, and down, down, down again into wild valleys and out into acres of blue flowers. Well, I'm not going to lie. I might have cried a little bit listening to that just now. You know, maybe. Maybe I did. <laughs> I love how Lewis manages to help us make contact with some of the joy of Easter that I think Shmeiman was talking about earlier. And Kirsten's reading was just a whole kind of joy in itself. Thank you so much for sharing that reading with us. Um... Beloved, this is a season of joy, but it's not a cheap, flimsy joy that doesn't last. Uh, This is a costly, dearly bought joy that is durable enough to outlast any and all griefs in this world of trouble. He has truly overcome the world and its tribulations, and we may weep. But as Shmeiman says, in the midst of our weeping, we hold a secret strength. Or, like Aslan says, we participate in a deeper magic that is older than the world, but that has been born, has lived, died, and been resurrected in this very world upon which you and I now walk. That is really amazing news. So, happy Easter tide. Um, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Please share this with your friends and leave reviews, and I will see you next week.